All right. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the newest uh, Ask Me Anything. So uh, general ground rules are, number one, there's two ways to ask a question. Um, by sharing your webcam or by text. And within text, you can do it anonymously or you can do it um, by using your name. And so you'll get your question ordered in answer of the following priority. So anyone who raises their hand can share their webcam. And if you share your webcam, you will get to ask your question first. Uh, then we'll go to the Q&A box. The Q&A box... Um, it, you, I don't mind if you ask anonymously, but in order to, one thing I'll be doing is making sure that everyone gets a chance to get their question asked before I answer a second question from anyone. And so if you ask anonymously, I have to treat everyone who's anonymous as one person. Um, and then also, if you have a list of questions, ask your most important question first, because in the last AMA, one of the reasons that I had one just a week after the last one is because there were a lot of uh, questions that didn't get answered because we had a lot more than we usually do. Um, and so if you have a list of a few questions, make sure that if there's one question you want answered um, to not be disappointed and to be happy when the AMA ends, put that one first. Um, and then please don't use the chat for anything except something that it doesn't matter if I see it right now. However, um, in the Q&A, and I actually have to enable this, I believe. So... Um, see here. In the q and I'm going to make it so that people are allowed to comment on other people's questions. I just did that. And so if you're, if you want to jump in on someone's question, they're asking it in the Q&A box, you can do that by responding in the Q&A box uh, by commenting on their question. But if someone raised their hand, they're sharing their webcam, the only way that you'll be able to jump in is in the chat. And so uh, that's the one time to use the chat. Um, and then uh, also, uh, so uh, everyone in here is MasterPass members, and um, it, uh, if you like the kind of uh, answers that you get here and you want some private time with me, I do offer consultations. I do have slots for next Wednesday, and then you could also schedule through the year. If you do want to schedule a consultation with me, um, which can come in half-hour slots, hour slots, or... Uh, assigning me data to review outside the call as well for a half hour, an hour, you are entitled to uh, $50 off every hour of consultations as a result of being a MasterPass member, but you do have to ask customer support for uh, the private links to schedule with the discount. Um, so if you do schedule a, a consultation, uh, make sure you use the private links that get your discount and not the ones on the public website. Uh, so just email support at chrismasterjohnphd.com to get those links. Uh, okay, so let's see what we have here. Um, someone raised their hand. Okay, we have a few people who raised their hand. So I'm going to plug in my earphones to make sure we don't get any feedback. And Christina Gall has the first question. So Christina, uh, I have promoted you to a panelist. You should be able to share your audio and video now. Hi, Chris. I'm going to turn on my video. I was on the last one too without video. This time you can see me. Hi. Hi. So uh, I have two questions. First one is about vitamin D. So 
I've read about vitamin D quite a lot. Um, I know that in general, people who get a lot of sunshine, like lifeguards, have levels between 40 and 60 mg. I know that you recommend something like that as well, 40-ish, 50-ish. Um, my question is, anecdotally, I'm, I've seen a lot of people feel better with somewhat higher levels, closer to 80. So for someone who doesn't have any parathyroid issues or any other issues related to vitamin D, who's taking magnesium and K2 to help with vitamin D absorption, would you see any dangers in trying to attain and keep a level kind of closer to 70 or 80 long-term? So, yeah. So my baseline default is everyone should be uh, like 30 to 40 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, I do think that there's considerable reason to think that people who are not of white European ancestry can get away with lower levels. Um, but I don't think there's any harm really going above 30 nanograms per milliliter in general. And so I think it's a, just a good default to say, stay out of the lower than 30 nanograms per milliliter range. That's my, my baseline. Um, in terms of higher levels, so in the lifeguards, the, uh, the data that was popularized, especially by Reinhold Beef, about the Israeli lifeguards who had levels in the 50s that was used, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, was popularized as proxies for our ancestral levels, thinking that they were more representative of the sunshine that we would have had in our evolutionary environment, um, which I, I disagree with and I've written about why. But in that study, uh, or a couple studies there, they had like 20 times the risk of kidney stones. And so there was a little bit of controversy over that because people were saying, well, they were also dehydrated uh, and this and that. And of course, they probably weren't supplementing with vitamin A. They probably weren't supplementing with vitamin K2 or magnesium. Um, but we know from animal experiments that the most sensitive uh, problem with vitamin D toxicity is that you can get kidney stones before you ever get hypercalcemia. And that's not surprising because those lifeguards have hypercalciuria. So their blood levels of calcium were being maintained at normal levels by increasing the amount of calcium in their urine. And if the, if the calcium is increased in the urine, then it's going to cause all the same problems in the kidneys that it, that it would cause in the other organs if you had systemic hypercalcemia. Um, and so... In terms of why some people anecdotally feel so much better at 80, I my suspicion is that there are some people who have genetic differences in their sensitivity to the vitamin D and that they may be benefiting from higher levels because of that. But I feel like that's very speculative at this point. And yes, I know that there are some uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms that have been identified in the vitamin D receptor. But in terms of what they do and why they're associated with disease risk in some cases is really wishy-washy. Um, so I'm not really ready to say anything definitive about the people who feel good at levels that high. What I would say is you want to make, you know, at 80, you're probably not at a risk for hypercalcemia, uh, but you might be at a risk for hyper, hypercalciuria. Um, and so I would look for that. Like, I think it's, I think it would be good to just... Um, periodically, maybe more frequently at first, like let's say you're, let's say the idea is to maintain someone on a lifelong level of 80 nanograms per milliliter, maybe uh, four times the first year, two times the second year, once the first uh, third year, and then every few years thereafter, I would measure the urinary calcium and make sure that that 
level is not associated with hypercalciuria in that person. Because if it is, I think you're putting that risk, person at an increased risk of kidney stones, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would I would say that person wants to get at least 200 micrograms of vitamin K2. Um, my default would be to say 10,000 IU of vitamin A just off of the fact that I feel like you're basically doubling the normal amount of vitamin D in, in someone who's 80 nanograms per milliliter. And so as a base case, you want to double the vitamin A. But I also think that you should measure the serum vitamin A and make sure that you're not putting that person towards the top 10% of the reference range and pull back if you are. Um, my assumption would be that the vitamin A turnover is going to be higher in that person and that a higher dose is not going to result in a higher, um, in, in a high, over the reference range vitamin A. Um, but I would monitor it at the similar frequency as I just mentioned, just to make sure that's not happening. And then all fat soluble vitamins do cause increased turnover of the others, even if they're not being used cooperatively. So vitamin A and D do some things together. That's part of why they increase their turnover together. But it's also the case that the machinery for breaking down fat soluble vitamins is shared among the fat soluble vitamins. So if you hyperdose, uh, megadose with one, you will deplete the others. And so um, I, I actually would say this person should probably have like 400 micrograms of K2 and 40 IU of vitamin E per day as a, as a default, uh, just on the basis that you're kind of doubling everything. And then I would, there's not really a good marker for vitamin K status. I'm not really happy with them. There's certainly no marker for, for like too much, um, for vitamin E, uh, more or less same thing. Like there's a plasma vitamin E is a pretty decent marker of status, but, but not in terms of monitoring for too much. So I, the only, the only one I would be worrying about pushing into the toxicity range would be a, and like I said before, I just keep that at least 10% behind the top of the reference range. So Mm -hmm. that's how I'd approach that. Very comprehensive. Um, on K2, um, I've heard some, some, uh, debates between, MK7 versus MK4. Do you have any opinions on that? In other words, some people say MK4 is better and higher dosage of that compared to MK7. Yeah. um, My default here is that a healthy diet would always have a mix of all of them. And although it's hard to justify a reason for having K1 specifically, if you also have MK7, um, and it's hard to, um, the justification for having MK4 is, is somewhat speculative. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say speculative, but it's, it's at kind of the theoretical level. So, uh, basically like MK4 is not very good at supporting blood clotting, but MK7 and K1 are, and we know that from human trials. And so we can at least say you shouldn't only get MK4 because it's not very good at supporting blood clotting. On the other hand, we know that all animals, including humans, synthesize MK4 specifically from every other form of vitamin K and must do it for a reason. And that no matter what you eat, the uh, you know, aside from certain particular tissues like the liver, where ev- you know, everything fluxes through it and it will hold on to a lot of things, in most tissues, MK4 is going to be the exclusive K vitamin and it's going to be derived from, uh, at a minimum, the synthesis of MK4 from these other compounds. And so, uh, and there's also roles 
that have been shown in gene expression for MK4 that are not shared by any of the other K vitamins. And so you have a very good theoretical basis for saying you should have some MK4, but you don't have any trials showing, you know, where we do have trials showing that MK4 is bad at supporting blood clotting, but MK7 and K1 are good and MK7 is better than K1. We don't have that showing MK4 is better for anything. But we also don't really have many head-to-head comparisons of the different forms for many things at all. Um, so that's largely, uh, or at least arguably, driven mostly by absence of evidence rather than evidence of absence. Um, and so I think it's I think it's unwise to say, well, we don't have those trials, therefore. So I guess the people who style themselves as as evidence based would say, well, there's no RCTs showing MK4 good for anything, therefore don't eat MK4. Uh, and I think that's I think that's um, very unwise because. If you look back to the ancestral default, we would have gotten MK4 from animal foods. We would have gotten MK7 from fermented foods. We would have gotten K1 from plant foods. And so the base case should be get all those things. Um, In terms of the dosing, the dosing differences are mainly an artifact from the fact that different people have studied different doses of different forms and never compared them. So, for example, most MK4 has been studied in Japan mostly to treat osteoporosis, mostly at doses like 45 milligrams. Mm -hmm. Most MK7 has been studied in the Netherlands, mostly by one group there associated with Case Vermeer and Leon Sugars, um, you know, mostly to uh, look at like undercarboxylated osteocalcin. And, And then most K1 has been studied in the United States mostly by Sarah Booth at Tufts or uh, John Suddy uh, in the Midwest, who's retired now, um, mostly looking at other things. And so there's just a total paucity of data comparing truly functional or clinical endpoints of these things at different doses in the same trial. And so most of what people say about the differential dosing, I think, is BS. Um and so my, my base case is to say, as a default, get your K1 from veggies um, and then try to get a mix of MK4 and MK7 that totals up to two to 400 micrograms per day for the people we were just talking about, one to 200 micrograms for general people that you know, can come from food if you eat those foods and supplement if you don't. But I, I would prefer a mixed supplement. Got it. Thank you very much. Um, I don't want to take too much time, but I had another question. And if you think you can give a short answer, I would appreciate it. Um, for someone who has extreme trouble losing weight, even on a low carb diet, no exceeding calories, etc., for many years, um, subclinically hypothyroid, would you recommend uh, extended fasting, as in 24 to 48 hours, as a strategy to to try to not also high blood sugar? I think extended fasting is a bad strategy for someone with subclinical hypothyroidism, but I'm not totally opposed to experimenting with it. Um, but I would go first for um, experimenting with uh, high protein caloric restriction, uh, protein for satiety and body composition, caloric restriction because all weight loss is caused by caloric restriction, no matter what diet people are using. And if someone's on a low-carb diet and they're not losing weight, they're not sustaining a caloric deficit at food intake that's satisfying them. 
Um, so I would try upping the protein uh, and doing something uh, maybe cyclically keto on top of that before I would do an extended fast. Um, but, you know, if nothing else works and the extended fast works, I'm not totally opposed to it. I just, I just wouldn't use it as a first shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Thank you very yeah. much. Really helpful. Take care. Thank Bye. you for your questions, Robin. Um, okay. Uh, oh, sorry. Robin is next. Um, Robin. Thank you, Christina. Sorry. I looked at the list. <laughs> um, okay. Robin Kyle is next. Robin, are you there? Mute. Okay, I had to unmute. Hi, Robin. I'm here now. You're here. Hi. Um, Hi. I had a question. um, It's actually for a client that I'm coaching who has lost uh, 100 pounds in the last year doing a mostly carnivore uh, keto diet. Um, But he has some really strange numbers, and he has for his whole life, basically. He's had very high blood pressure. Um, his triglycerides are 868. His HDL is 28. His LDL is 49. Um, and despite trying What's his total cholesterol, I don't know. He didn't give, he didn't have that total cholesterol number for some reason. It's that was be pretty all. low. Yeah. Um, but the triglycerides are eight. I mean, these are milligrams per deciliter, right? I, yeah, I would assume yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just wondering okay, if... So what's the question? My question is, do you know... Uh, well, first of all, I'm always trying to figure out ways that we can try to get his blood pressure down. Okay. Um, it's always super high. We've tried um, We've tried high salt. We've tried low to zero salt. We've... Um, we've he, he exercise... He does... Tried potassium. Yes, he's been taking potassium with the he he was actually doing a lot of potassium for a while when he especially when he was up high on salt. How much? Um, three thousand. He was up to three thousand a day. Well, um, it's possible more potassium would help. Uh, of course, you know it. If you're using high dose potassium, you want to make sure that um, some that they're not. Uh, going into hyperkalemia, but um, if 3,000 milligrams is safe, then 4.7 is probably safe. And the adequate intake from the previous round of uh, dietary reference intakes was actually set at 4.7 grams. They used to, until last year, they used to say the default recommendation was 4.7 grams of potassium per day on the basis that there are some people who have salt sensitivity that require uh, the 4.7 grams as the dose to control their blood pressure. So, um, and also if you look at um, some of the, uh, Linda Frasetto is, um, and she's associated with the Ancestral Health Symposium and she's done some work at uh, University of, I think she's at uh, UCSF and uh, she's a, a renal uh, specialist, and she's done some uh, review papers uh, on ancestral diets. And there are some people that, I mean, she's not the origin of it, but she's been involved with it. But there are some people that think ancestral potassium intakes could have been as high as 11 grams per day. Um, so with, I mean, I'm not saying that that's going to resolve the blood pressure. I'm just saying that, 
you might have a false negative on the potassium when you're at three grams per day. Okay. Um, do you know why his triglycerides could be so high? What were they again? 868. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know, but that, you know, it sounds like he's probably got some kind of uh, genetic alteration in lipid handling. I mean, his cholesterol is very low and his triglycerides are very high. Yeah. I, you know, I, you might want to, you might want to consult with uh, a lipid specialist. Okay. Who, um, you know, cause I, I haven't studied all the diversity of, uh, of uh, familial lipid disorders in quite a while. So off the top of my head, I'm not sure what that yeah. is, but. Um, yeah, he's I, from the, he's from the Samoan islands. So there may be some. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's people out there who right off the top of their head would recognize that as something. And, I, and I'm just not that person right now. Yeah. Um, but high dose, I, generally I'm not a fan of high dose fish oil, but um you know, five grams and up of EPA ethyl esters might bring the triglycerides down. Um, okay. Because uh, it could be you need to interfere with lipid synthesis. Is that five is it, grams of, of fish oil a day? Yeah, I would never. I would never think that that's generally good as a nutritional strategy, but as a pharmacological strategy to lower triglycerides in people with severe hypertriglyceridemia, it's helpful. Um, uh, but I mean, that, this person uh, really seems like they need a lipid up expert to to figure out what's what's up with the triglycerides. Is are the triglycerides uh, resistant to diet or? Uh, yeah. When I say resistant to diet, I mean has this person gone on the opposite of a carnivore diet and they they've been the same? Yes. Or, they bef well before. Um, well, he he went keto about. Three years ago, before that, he was pretty serious, sad diet, and he had really high triglycerides when he were was. They, were they higher, or were they the same, or were they not as high? As far as I remember, they were the same. I would have to go double check with him, but he—they've always been very high. So, you know, it's always been something that he's been worried about, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how worried about it he needs to be, you know, but. <laughs> the same time i'm just i'm just well yeah i mean i i think i think it's i think it's worth getting it checked up on uh because that's strongly suggestive of some kind of uh genetic mutation or something okay i mean it sounds yep. like a like a familial hyperlipidemia of some sort although okay. it's it's that's very interesting that his cholesterol is so low yeah um i mean so it's i mean if if i uh, I'm throwing out total speculation. I feel unqualified to uh, comment on this, but it sounds like he's got uh, like a defect in, um, you know, something related to triglyceride clearance, like lipoprotein lipase or something like that, um, which is an enzyme that helps you try clear. You know, if you eat fat, um, that I mean, unless he has like, you know, radically increased synthesis of fat, which is, possible but it just seems so hard to imagine how that could get that high just from that um you know because you can put someone on like a severely um high, high carb hypercaloric diet and their triglycerides will go up because of, of like total synthesis of the excess of carbs as yeah fat. and i don't think they're gonna go that that high and 
Uh, similarly, you can put someone on a pure fat diet and I don't think they're going to have triglycerides that high. Um, so it sounds to me like the person's not clearing triglycerides. Some uh, A couple of people put in the chat, maybe something useful here. Um, David Anderson is saying, Peter Atia has some great podcast interviews that dive deep into lipids and triglycerides. Yep. Yeah, uh, I'll check I mean, out that, this stuff. Yeah, and you might want to... Um, might want to hit up uh him you might want to hit up uh spencer nadolsky on twitter um and just say you know hey who who can i talk to that knows about this how do you spell spencer's last name i've uh, never N- heard of him n-a-d-o-l-s-k-y okay cool great yeah. that's a lot of good stuff to he's look been, into he's, get, he's getting his board certification in lipidology so he's pretty uh up to date on all that stuff okay. that's in, is a distant memory for me. So great. Well, thank you. I got to run to an appointment. Okay. So cool. thanks very much for the Rob. help. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Uh, David Anderson is next. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hi, David. How are you doing? Hey, doing great. I've I'm have my uh, laptop docked, so there's no webcam right now, but no um, we got audio. Great. Uh, so my daughter swims at the collegiate level, uh, which you know involves a real heavy load of pretty heavy training load. You know, swimming, weightlifting, CrossFit style, functional fitness. You know, they're probably putting in about twenty hours of training load a week. So, assuming you know she's in overall good health, getting enough good quality sleep, um, you know, but obviously you know, that that kind of training load's putting a good bit of stress on the body. What, what would be the you know we've never run like without doing a full on Genova Ion panel type thing uh what would be the key nutrient issues that you'd be watching out for and just wanting to keep an eye on and of those issues you know which do you think are potentially more likely to require you know supplementation in addition to just food to get adequate support and you know what kind of guidance would you give there and 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 currently she's not you mean as a result of her activity yeah yeah and just what kind of things to watch out to make sure that she's not being nutrient depleted as a result of such a high training load or any kind of special demands like that to, to keep an eye out for? Um, I mean, mainly calories uh, would be absolute number one. Uh, number two would be carbohydrate. So I do think that people can fuel athletic capabilities on low carb diets, but uh you know, you might want to look at stress hormones and sex hormones because sometimes fueling athletic diets on, uh, fueling athletic performance on a low carb diet comes at the expense of elevated stress hormones, um, which could mess with, uh, thyroid hormones and sex hormones. Uh, and I think that would be, I think those two things, the calories and carbs would be the top risk for potential hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, I mean, that would trump everything else, completely everything else. Um, there, higher energy demands are going to demand more B vitamins. Um, that's true. And that's, you know, that's generally going to be probably most B vitamins besides B12 and folate. Um, Although B12 and folate are peripherally involved in energy metabolism, the other B vitamins are more directly involved. Um, and I don't, you know, I generally like a higher activity level is, 
So it's that it has been demonstrated, for example, with riboflavin that higher activity levels will elevate riboflavin requirements. Um, and so that's the most well demonstrated, but I wouldn't, there's so little research on it that I would kind of guess that that's generally true for the other B vitamins involved in energy metabolism. Um, but what generally will happen is those nutrients will move from energy metabolism away from their other purposes. And so, for example, um, supporting antioxidant defense, uh, and, you know, that's probably not going to cause any serious issues. It's probably more likely to lead to like some skin problems or something like that. But, you know, if she's developing uh, problems with skin, hair or nails, uh, then more, more of those B vitamins might help. Those would be the top things, but I would be overwhelmingly concerned with the caloric requirements and the carbohydrate oh, yeah. requirements. <laughs> oh yeah, they eat constantly, <laughs> swimmers. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Yeah, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. Of this, you know, skin, hair, and nails kind of being a uh, uh, a canary for potential B issues. Um, in, and your thoughts on like C and E or other things from a um, oxidative stress perspective? Would you? recommend supplementation or just any particular thing again as a more functional indicator of hey this should should get some attention from supplementation perspective i i would eat a diet rich in those things and if you want supplement with them at higher end dietary levels but i wouldn't supplement extra of them really because i think uh, the jury will be out for quite a while on whether it's bad or good for exercise performance to supplement antioxidants. And the answer will probably inevitably be, it depends. Um, and it's just what yeah. it depends on is, is I think go, the jury will be out on exactly what it depends on for an even longer time. Um, so, you know, eat, eat lots of vitamin C, eat, lots of vitamin E, but you know, don't, I wouldn't mega dose because of the exercise. I think that could, that's as likely to help as it is to hurt the exercise performance and the adaptations. Cool. Make, makes sense. Awesome. Th thank, thanks so much. Appreciate You're the thought. Thanks for the question. Okay. Chris Morell is up next. Chris, you are promoted to a pa uh, panelist. Hey, Chris. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Hey, um, I have a question about cholesterol remnants, but I have a quick follow-up to Christina's question, if that's okay. On the vitamin A supplementation, as someone who's of Jewish and Italian descent, naturally my vitamin D can go into the 50s, which it is right now. Um, on the vitamin A supplementation, is that, from your perspective, I know you had some concerns about COVID risk at the beginning. Is that mostly still a concern for you or not? Uh. It's mostly, it's mostly gone because I think that, so, I mean, so first of all, I, I think, you know, depending on where you live, um, I know the news is real nosy, noisy, but um, I, uh, I, I've kind of shifted very much away from designing my life around COVID and very much into designing my life around what I was designing it around before COVID. Um, and I, there's only so much, uh, there's only so many months for which I can like put all my other priorities on, on hold. And I live in New York city and I, I really feel like, um, 
things are largely back to normal here. So I think if you, you know, depending on where you live, you may feel more or less like that. Um, and the, the more you feel like that, the more that I would just completely ignore the potential uh, contribution to COVID. But the bigger thing is, and the reason that I dropped the, uh, the uh, concerns about vitamin A from the most, at least the most recent issue of the COVID guide and possibly the most recent couple issues, I forget, is that the concerns around vitamin A were largely the same as around vitamin D. And the way that vitamin D evolved into a fairly big research body that made those concerns largely dissipate made it just seem like too much cognitive dissonance to um, maintain the concern at equal legitimacy on vitamin A um, uh, due to absence of evidence. Um, in other words, it, it just the probability seemed to strongly favor that had anyone cared to research vitamin A like they did vitamin D, it would have emerged similarly, where with vitamin D, um, I don't think it's totally clear that there is no increased risk at some higher level, but it's clear that if 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 any kind of U-shaped curve exists, the right side of the U doesn't look anything like the left side of the U. Um, and that it's just, you know, real clear that you don't want to be deficient. Not so clear if you care whether you're on the higher level. And so it's probably similar with vitamin A. Cool. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate the clarification. Um, quick question. So I've I followed your work for you know ten years or so. Um, I know you've talked about cholesterol remnants and and um, from time to time, but I've seen this pop up in the conversation with like guys like Dave Feldman and some of the studies now referencing lower remnant cholesterol looking like lower CHV or CBD risk. And I'm just curious what you think about that. I know, like I'm trying to just do my own equations, and I've looked at cholesterol remnants from the test over the last five years that hover in the teens, you know, 13 to 17. Is that a number that you recommend looking at if you have accurate LDL calculation? Is does that factor into the risk stuff? I haven't been following what Feldman's been doing on that, so to be honest, I, I don't really feel competent in answering that question. Uh, what are you measuring when you're looking at that? So I've seen him and a couple other people look at like these observational studies um what, with i mean what are you what metric are you looking at so what, what they're saying is to look at that yeah like basically any it's just basically adding up your ldl and hdl and subtracting that from your total cholesterol and what you're left with is the remnant that's supposed to be you know less than 20 or so optimally that's that's the whole story so who, who came up with the term remnant cholesterol did it's, i've been googling it like it's yeah. there's a lot of stuff out there i just have not i'm maybe I know you haven't talked specifically about it, but I know you've talked about recycling and repair. And I just, I'm like, have I missed this conversation as far as a risk factor? Cause it seems to be gaining speed, but I'm not sure if there's any basis behind this stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I just have, I, you know, I haven't been, um, I haven't been keeping up with this conversation over the last few years, to be honest. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think of remnant, like there's a, there's a Wikipedia page on it. Uh, and so, and it's exactly what you said that it's the Wikipedia page is like, who the hell wrote this? It says remnant cholesterol, also known as remnant lipoprotein is a very atherogenic lipoprotein composed primarily of very low density lipoprotein and intermediate density lipoprotein. The grammar in that sentence is like, <laughs> it's a lipoprotein composed of two other lipoproteins. 
I, I, you know, I think they meant it's a group of lipoprotein. Anyway, um, so what's Feldman saying? That <laughs> I mean, you're gonna have to take my like loose word for yeah, it, for it. But as this one, but no. And <laughs> as I've as I've been reading it, basically the idea is you don't want to have a lot of leftover cholesterol that's not LDL or HDL. And the higher that goes into the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the risk. And I know people are sharing in the chat. Um, and I just I know you have to have a a better like a you don't want calculated LDL, right? You want some type of measured LDL test, but that's all I really know about it. And that that risk can associate with different levels of teens to twenties to thirties and more. So I just, again, I just want to see if that was something that you were aware of or in the conversation of something that we should be looking at. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm so Pippa shared in the chat, uh, Feldman's, uh, paper, uh, article on this blog blog post about this remnant cholesterol, what every low carber should know. So he's showing remnant cholesterols, the cholesterol left in the chylomicron remnant, which is, uh, you know, you eat, you eat fat, it circulates through the lymph and then into the blood is chylomicrons. They clear very quickly, but there's some left over. Those are called chylomicron remnants. So there's some cholesterol in that. Then um, the liver secreting VLDL, and the liver does secrete IDL and LDL, but it's generally thought that the main pathway is the liver makes VLDL. That's largely got triglycerides. Of course, it has some cholesterol. Then there's exchange of triglycerides and cholesterol between the different lipoproteins. The VLDL generally gets metabolized to IDL and then to LDL. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I, if the remnant, when I, my, the first thing I think of, is if the remnant cholesterol is increasing, which is the sum of the chylomicron remnant VLDL and IDL cholesterol concentrations, um, then I would guess that's that's probably because the lipoproteins aren't being cleared very fast. And that's mm-hmm. and so he says, why is this a problem? You see these lipoproteins mentioned aren't even supposed to be hanging around the blood for very long. That makes sense to me. Um, VLDL should be 30 to 60 minutes. Half-life should, should be gone in five times that, um, et cetera. And so he's got a traffic analogy. So I, I think he's basically saying what I just said, which is that that's yeah. an index of slow clearance. Um, and so he quotes a paper, remnant cholesterol, also known as remnant lipoprotein, is a very atherogenic lipoprotein compares, composed. Wait, that's the first sentence of the Wikipedia page. <laughs> literally the first pulled it. So <laughs> interesting. Um, and so it looks like he's saying, uh, so he says VLDLs uh, effect- effectively distribute fat-based energy triglycerides and thus have longer residence times before they can move on, remodel to the next stages. The lipid system is being employed to a higher, higher degree in fighting or repairing a disease state. Um, so I guess he's, does, does it sound right that he's saying that, um, it's fighting some disease state instead of trafficking the lipids to where to the usual pathway. Is that what he's saying? I I think so. I mean, I think you're like, you're right. It's it's, as far as it's really saying poor clearance, it seems like, and whether that's a disease state or whether that's something else causing it or oxidative state. I don't know. Yeah. So the question I would have is this are, and I don't know the answer to this, but if, you know, if I were to pursue this longer, the question I would try to answer is this, are there any, are there, is there a body of prospective studies that have compared head to head 
the use of the total to HDL cholesterol ratio with remnant cholesterol, or which have integrated remnant cholesterol together with the total to HDL cholesterol ratio in a model that improves its ability to predict future heart disease risk. And because my basic position, which, um, you know, this is something I worked very intensively on many years ago and then just barely, like, barely kept up with um, intermittently. So, you know, at the time that I was most intensively researching it, um, there were a huge number of prospective studies looking at blood lipid correlations with heart disease risk. Very few, and it still remains the case that there's relatively very few looking at at, uh, fancy stuff like LDL size and whatnot, but there's just huge numbers of people that have been in prospective studies. And total to HDL cholesterol ratio uh, beats out total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and HDL cholesterol. Um, I don't know what, I I would want to know whether there's something similar showing remnant cholesterol improves the interpretation because my general view is that total to HDL cholesterol ratio is an index of, of poor clearance. And so the question is, um, and I think ApoB is, you know, it's not only, it's not only a marker poor clearance, but it is, is partly a marker poor clearance. So is LDL particle size and pattern. And so I look at this and I'm like, well, probably the portion of that, uh, that, um, probably, you know, the, the information that all those things are telling you is that some part of their concentration correlates with poor clearance. And that's, what's giving you the information about disease risk. So the question is, does, is remnant cholesterol telling you the exact same thing that, those other markers are telling you, or is it, is it giving you independent information? And I think that would be the the basis for deciding whether it's something to, to look at. Cool. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I think we can wrap this up, but I know yeah. that Pippa just shared the, there is this analysis of 4,000 or so, I think African-American men from the Jackson Heart and Framingham study. And they, they did make, they're making that correlation remnant to CVD risk. And with, but to your point, it might be the same as total HDL cholesterol or H, triglyceride to HDL. I just don't know which is better. Well, okay. Just, let's, well, yeah. let's look at the last sentence in the abstract. Associations were attenuated by high density lipoprotein cholesterol and ultimately lost significance with inclusion of real LDL cholesterol, which excludes LP little a and IDL cholesterol fractions. Similar associations were seen in multivariable analyses within each cohort. So I would look at in more detail at that paper. I mean, the, there's only 146 CHD events. So the fact that they lost significance doesn't mean that they disappeared. And it's possible that with a much larger sample size with more events, they wouldn't have lost significance. Um, but the fact that they're attenuated and lost significance in that paper raises the possibility that it's it's providing you the same information you were getting otherwise, and it's not really doing anything more for you. Now, you you know, another thing to point out is that, and um, some, te- some people talk about discordance between the, these various predictors, it is worth noting that obviously if they're discordant, they might be telling you, my problem with discordance is, you know, if usually when you look at someone's total LDL, uh, total HDL cholesterol ratio, you're going to get the same kind of, you know, if you, if you look like a Boston heart or score or something where they're in the green or the red or the middle, um, generally if like two or three things of those are, are in the red, by the time you read through the rest of it, they're all in the yellow or red. Um, if they're, you know, if they're in, especially if they're in the red deep enough. And so if you added remnant cholesterol to that, like how often would you see that it, that it was acting differently? The problem with 
And so you can say, well, sometimes it's discordant and that's why you have to measure the fancy thing. The problem is there's not, there, there aren't pers- big large scale perspective studies saying in the discordant people, that thing is a yeah. good predictor, right? And so is it discordant because it's just telling you a different piece of information that's not associated with risk and it's not telling you the association, uh, the information that is associated with risk that is also associated with the concordance. You see what I mean? Yeah. So yep. I, I, I just, I think it, there's a lot of wishy-washy stuff here and I don't blame people for being proactive about, well, I'm discordant and my thing looks like this, so I'm going to try to manage it. Um, makes sense because we're not going to know all the answers to all these questions for a very long time, if ever. Um, but it's, I mean, that it's just a little wishy-washy, right? So is it telling you the same information? Quite possibly. Is it meaningful? If it's discordantly telling you something else, I'm not sure. Cool. Thanks for going in detail on this. I appreciate it, Chris. See You're welcome. Take care. All right. Kay is the last uh, person who's raising their hand. So we'll go to the Q&A box next. And Kay, you are promoted to panelist. You there, Kay? Kay? Oh, hi. Hi, Kay. Do you have oh, hi. Uh, yeah. So um, I have some question uh, for my son. He's uh, 14 years old. Okay. Um, so he he's always been skinny boy, but around age of 10 or 11. And then he started to become chubby and, and especially the fat is around the lower abdomen, like the, the below the waist, the, that area. So what do you think the reason might be for that? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, I mean, that could range from he's eating too much to there's something hormonal going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, but, what's the hormone um, reason, the possible hormone reason for that? Well, if you do think it's hormonal, you should probably take him to an endocrinologist. But um, because without measuring anything you're not really going to know but um you know there could be thyroid pituitary sex hormones i mean is there anything else that's going on with his health is he maturing um is he going he said he's 14 yeah he's 14 now yeah has he gone through puberty normally yeah Um, very yeah very normal but his energy and cognitive function healthy oh yeah yeah but uh some acne uh, on the face. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but he's otherwise. Uh, but he feels good. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly good. Okay. And so, how overweight is he? Uh, no, just chubby. But then, just that area. This right, like just, obvious. Yeah. Right, yeah. But how? Yeah. So uh, he's chubby. He's uh, overweight. Yeah. yeah. So it's so not like overweight. Yeah. Like just a little bit chubby. Like not skinny, but not overweight. Yeah. Well, if he's not so overweight, like, there's no problem with being a little chubby. Yeah, but I don't know why the fat uh, goes around that area. Looks like a bit abnormal. Where he was, yeah, like the. Well, um, does he look no- like notably uh, sc- like skinny and gaudy in the rest of his body? Does his face look like it's uh, well? Not- yeah, it's a. Chubby, uh, 
like the upper body is a bit normal, but the the just the lower and the below the belly button that around that area. I'm not sure so that that's like, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure that that's uh, requires much of a specific explanation other than he tends to store his fat there. Yeah, um, yeah. So. You know, some people is skinny fat. They have a big tummy and they're skinny otherwise. But I don't think that's the case for him. It's like a little bit below the belly button area. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, a little bit below the belly button area is consistent with um, that. I mean, that's an area where you'll store fat on your abdomen. Um I, I, I can't, t- I mean, if he's not overweight, it just doesn't seem like there's um, an issue. I mean, he he just might have a, you know, it's a variation in body type. Um, oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I um, mean, if, if he feels great, um, yeah. if he feels great and he's developing normally and his mm. cognitive function is great and his physical function is great and he's not overweight... But he had, but he's get, but he looks a little bit chubby below his belly button. I, I'm not yeah. sure there's anything wrong with him. He, uh, yeah, yeah, just I don't know how the how come the sudden change because it's always pretty well, he's four, skinny. He's 14, so you would think that he would go through lots of sudden changes, right? Yeah, yeah, like uh, so. I want to ask the uh, intermittent fasting is it safe for teenagers? Um, prob, I, I doubt it. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, so uh, t- teenagers have very high growth demands, very high nutrient um, requirements. So I would, I mean, I think for, for a teenager undergoing growth, they should eat lots and lots of nutrient dense food. Um, yeah. And I, I think that like generally nutrient requirements for growing teenagers are are high enough that they're more likely to be in an underfed state than an overfed state if they're not subjected to, if, you know, if they're not becoming overweight and obese in in that kind of environment. Um, So my, I mean, my general, if you're not, if you're not going to look at hormones and stuff, my general view would be um, if they intuitively feel good when they, intermittent fast sometimes then that's probably fine but i i wouldn't really like um i wouldn't really try to get them to do it if they're not doing it intuitively or if they don't like love the idea of it Um, yeah because uh, i think uh, go ahead so intermittent fasting is just a feeding window like it doesn't mean that when you're not fasting the the feeding would during the feeding window, you can still eat a lot of nutrient dense food. So you, you just yeah agreed. yeah agreed, but um, yeah. agreed, but it all but uh, intermittent fasting can can be a stress, and it's going to be more of a stress in someone who has real high caloric demands. So intermittent fasting is going to be more difficult for someone who's pregnant or lactating, for example, than it's going to be for an adult. It's going to be more difficult for a growing teenager um, than an adult. Uh, and it's going to be more difficult for a child. So I'm not, I'm not against, I'm not going to say it's not safe. Um, but I, I would be a little on the careful side for someone who's got real high caloric demands. That's all. Oh, high. What is that? High what? 
someone who needs to eat a lot of food who's growing a lot, I would just oh. be a little, I'd be a little extra careful with it. Um, and oh, so I'm just, I'm okay. just saying like, you know, if you're not taking measurements, um, yeah, I mean, they can try it, but you know, just monitor how they feel on it. You know, if it, if it, because I think that someone who's intermittent fasting can generally feel pretty easily whether their body type uh, can tolerate it. You know, some people feel like they can uh, go on forever, and they've got very clear mind. Um, can do, can uh, you know, feel generally not hungry. Um, other people are going to be hangry and cranky. All oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, yeah. Then, I would just say, hey, they're grow- they're a growing teenager. Maybe they shouldn't be fasting as much. If, yeah. if that's the case, you know, I, I would, yeah, I, would yeah. I would base the conclusions based on intuitively what it feels like. Does it feel easy for them, or 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 is it making things more difficult and judgeable? Yeah, and also uh, L-theanine uh, is that uh, safe as well for the teenagers? I, off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, I would be surprised oh. if it's unsafe for a teenager, but I, but I, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Uh, cause that's a uh, good for the brain, like co- cognitive function and stuff. So yeah. And, um, what kind of tests is like, is it necessary to test his hormone or nutrition to make sure that he's okay? Cause well, obvious, like right now he looks fine, but do you think it's necessary to get a, some kind of test to see if any area he needs to improve? Uh, it do, I mean, it doesn't sound to me like there's a hormonal problem, but yeah. there's also no harm in doing hormonal testing. So, um, mm. so I mean, I, I'm not going to say don't do it, but I, I just like probably if you talk to a primary care doctor, they're probably not going to recommend you refer to you to an endocrinologist and probably if you go to an endocrinologist, they're, I, they're probably not going to measure anything. Um, but they might, you know, I can't speak for them. Um, and so it, it's just based on my opinion, it do- doesn't sound like there's anything going on. Um, I mean, because you did say that he, he feels great and is functioning fine. Um, yeah, but sometimes he, he's got some anxiety or sometimes he's depressed. Like, occasionally mm. so that's why i thought about lcnian and and other things so what about nutrition like is it necessary to have a test and see uh maybe he's deficient in some but now there is no symptom of anything right now so I would I would refer you to my testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, w- which is an ebook that I have on testing nutritional status. And in that uh, ebook, I I outline an approach that basically answers that question depending on you the uh, financial resources you have available and the time you have available. Um, and so, if if someone is in a position where they don't have demonstrated clinical symptoms of a nutrient deficiency, then the cost intensive approach, which is something to do if you have lots of money and don't have a lot of time, is to do a comprehensive screening of, uh, of nutritional status. And that can, uh, you know, some of these can be covered by insurance and some of them can't. If you were to pay for everything out of your pocket, it would be like two or $3,000. Um, if you work with a doctor, you're more likely to get things covered by insurance. 
Uh, and then of course, some of that stuff you can, depending on your insurance, you might be able to, 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 uh, submit for reimbursement. Um, well, I'm, I'm not in the USA, so I'm well, in New Zealand. Mm. So I, I, then I, I would just, I wouldn't, take anything back from that, but I would say, I don't know what's available in New Zealand. Uh, I, you know, I do work with international clients who do nutritional testing. Um, but I don't, I don't know the, I can't handle the logistics because there's too many other countries and I don't know what's going on in each of them in terms of, of what you can order for testing. Um, the, the, um, the time intensive approach or the cost saving approach is to do a dietary analysis using uh, an app like Chronometer, for example, and and there's instructions on how to do that properly. There are some you know some important things to keep in mind, um, and then to look through the index of so over 180 to 200 signs and symptoms that can be associated with nutritional imbalances, and to go through like a checklist and to you know where you find ones that seem to fit, read the sections on those nutrients. Uh, look at the dietary analysis, see if there's something simple you can do, and then only use testing in a sparing basis to um, use it when it would help you make decisions. Uh, so, you know, if there's something real low risk to try for that problem, then you can do that uh, without any testing. But if there's something where you're not sure what to do and running some tests would help you, help you figure it out, that would be the point at which you would run tests in the cost saving approach. And so that's really something that um, it's just too open-ended to talk about it here because, um, it's, there's just, um, it, I, the best thing to do is, is kind of sit down with the cheat sheet and look at the approach and see how it would fit, um, with your family. Uh, yeah. and, you know, maybe in a future AMA or, uh, you, you maybe bring more specific questions, uh, that yeah. come from that. Yeah. Oh, so the cheat sheet just has all the information you can look up if you're deficient in this and what the symptoms yep. are? Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. And what was that app that you mentioned? Chronometer. It's, um, it's, it's, if you get the cheat sheet, it's act, there's actually a section on using the app to look at your vitamins and uh, your diet. Oh. So. oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, the, the last, uh, short question, yep. um, does freezing um, like lemon juice or uh, like other fruits and vegetables, does it destroy uh, vitamin C? Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't think so. I think uh, freezing and thawing uh, cyclically would probably destroy vitamin C, but I think vitamin C is fairly stable in the freezer, if I remember correctly. I mean, not stable. No, I think it is fairly stable. Uh, it is. Um, I would, uh, yeah. Yeah. Although I do think that it's good to include some fresh vegetables and fruits that haven't been frozen to, um, you know, cover the bases because not everything's stable in the freezer. Oh, uh, so it's not going to destroy a lot, maybe just a little bit. Right. Yeah. Oh, you can, use, okay. you can oh. use frozen, frozen vegetables and fruits. It's just, you know, also try to include some fresh ones when you can. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you for your question. Thanks a lot. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay. We've been through all the webcam questions. We're going to move to the Q&A box. Um, As a reminder, if you uh, enjoy doing Q&As with me and you want to sign up for a consultation, you can uh, send an email to support at chrismasterjohnphd.com. Get your MasterPass discounted private links 
um, and I am available a little bit next Wednesday and then also throughout next year. Okay, let's go to the Q&A box. So RJ Douglas says, I've read through your Vitamins and Minerals 101 course, and it is a great resource. Since there are so many vitamins and minerals to keep track of, I try to eat a well-rounded diet, but for meal planning purposes, it is not feasible to make sure I'm getting the recommended amount of all vitamins and minerals each day. My question is, are there any vitamins and minerals that you recommend getting on a daily basis to help ensure the body functions optimally? Stated another way, are there any vitamins and minerals that the body is particularly poor at storing and as such will effectively deplete itself of its reserves within a relatively short time period? Um. RJ, I would say that the top ones to be concerned about from a uh, have-to-get-it-today perspective would be zinc and B12. And both of those have absorption caps that are fairly tight, um, but B12 is the number one uh, uh, concern. And so generally speaking, you can absorb a day's worth of B12 per meal. And that means that if you want to stock up on B12 and not get it at every meal, the most you can stock up, the, the tightest you can distribute your B12 across your meals is to get a day's worth of B12 at at least one third of your meals through the year. So you can get a day's worth of B12 at all three meals. Now, I'm assuming you eat three meals a day. You have to adjust it otherwise. So you can get a day's worth of B12 at all three meals in January, February, March, and April. And then you can forget about B12 for the rest of the year. Alternatively, you can get all your B12 for the day at one meal every day, every day of the year. Um, and then, if, you know, if you want to break that down into more permutations, you can. It's just all based on the fact that you can only eat uh, a day's worth of B. You can only absorb a day's worth of B12 in each meal. For zinc, I think it's less. Um, it's it's less rigidly defined as that, but it's generally true that you're probably not going to get more than five to seven milligrams of zinc per meal. And so you want to, um, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of similar, but the, but the thing is zinc absorption is very regulated by zinc status. And so I don't think you want, I don't think you would be able to like stock up on zinc um, the, in the first four months of the year, like I just described for B12, because I think in those four months, your zinc absorption is going to go down a lot then it's going to go up during the rest of the year when you're not eating zinc, but you're not going to be able to take advantage of it. So zinc is, I think, something where you really want to kind of make sure that you're getting a day's worth on most days. Um, and then most of the B vitamins, most of the other B vitamins, are they don't have strict absorption caps, but they are limited by the amount of ATP and magnesium that... Well, um, they're limited by magnesium status in general, but then on a short-term basis, they're limited by your ATP supply. So <laughs> excuse me, when you eat a meal, your ATP levels are going to go up because you're well-fed and the ATP is going to help trap the B and retain the B vitamins. And they don't have, um, generally their absorption caps, if 
to the extent they exist, they're limited by that. And generally that's higher than what you would get in food. And so it's less likely to matter. Um, but if you were to try to put all your B vitamins into like liver on certain days, then, uh, you know, or, or B or B complex supplements, then at some point you're going to, you're going to get, you're going to hit a problem with, with, uh, you know, taking more than you can absorb at once and not being able to distribute it. So I would say the B vitamins, I think you generally want to make sure they're somewhat well distributed, but nothing has to be exactly perfectly distributed evenly. So, um, and then the fat soluble vitamins are generally going to be more limited by meal size and fat content. And so, if your fat content of your meals or the size of your meals varies a lot, take that into account and bias them towards the higher size, higher fat meals. Um, but then otherwise, you don't need to worry too much about uh, how they're distributed. So on the whole, I think that it's better to use a micronutrient tracking app, um, not so much to make sure that all your meals are hitting the the uh, requirements, and not even so much to make sure that all your days are, but more to make sure that on a week to week basis you are on average hitting the daily targets. Um, in other words, if you if you and of course, one of the things I recommend doing for people who don't like tracking is take three representative days and and track those. But what I hear you saying, RJ, is that your day three days isn't representative for you because you're you're too up and down. And so, if you want representative days and you don't like tracking, you do have to track enough days to actually be representative. The more variable your diet is, the more days that will be to make sure it's representative. But if you love tracking, and it sounds like you're a, you're a tracker, uh, if you love tracking and you track every day, then you really shouldn't be focusing on each day. You really should be just printing out a you know, a weekly report or a monthly report, I say printing out, you know, exporting how, uh, reporting it however you want. Uh, but look at the weekly averages and the monthly averages. And if on a weekly average basis, on a monthly average basis, um, you are hitting on average the daily targets, then I think that's generally good for most things. Um, and I don't think, you know, I, I feel like the only people who would care about getting B12 in the way that I described are people who have, um, you know, cyclically vegan or cyclically plant-based diets. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, that B, that B12, those B12 rules come into play there. And uh, I think, or, you know, people who get, get at, who could get fooled into thinking that they eat um, 200 grams of clams once a month. And so they're all set for B12 for the month. They're wrong. Um but as long as you're not deliberately trying to stock up in a particular way like that as a strategy, you probably don't need to worry about those rules. But if you are trying to deliberately stock up as a strategy, then you do especially want to pay attention to, the, to that B12 rule. You want to pay decent attention to the zinc rule. And you do want to make sure that your B vitamins are getting in on a, you know, uh, B, the, most of those other B vitamins, you could, you could probably, as long as you're hitting the daily average on the weekly basis, that's good. Um, but I wouldn't go to the monthly basis for looking at, at the B vitamins like that. 
Uh, okay, thank you for your question, RJ. Anonymous says, hey, Chris, what are your thoughts on Crohn's disease? Bacterial translocation due to dysfunctional intestinal barrier and an innate immune deficiency that impairs the bacterial clearance in the bowel tissue seem to be the two main culprits. Um, generally speaking, if you ask me something that is specific and not open-ended, I'm going to give a much better answer. And um, I, I mean, I appreciate your question, but I'm just letting you know in terms of my style of thinking um, and how I answer questions. Uh, the most difficult question for me to answer is what are my thoughts on something? So, um, and I also, I, I don't, I haven't been reading up on Crohn's disease to share very specific thoughts on it. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about a dysfunctional intestinal barrier and bacterial translocation, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't feel like I can answer this question. I'm sorry. I just, I just haven't been reading up on Crohn's disease specifically enough to talk about the uh, mechanisms of the disease. But thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Jay Anderson says, in your How to Manage Your Zinc Status video, you mentioned that a zinc deficiency can cause vitamin A, vitamin D, thyroid, and sex hormones to be ineffective. Why is this? I keep hearing that the body needs time to become fat adapted. Does it know how to burn fat right away? And then Jay has the fourth and fifth questions. So I'm guessing this is the third. He says, sorry for the format above. First question got glued to the second. The fat adapted question is separate. Oh, okay. So, um, Jay, I'm going to answer your first question. And then if there's time, and I think there will be, because there's fewer people in attendance today than in, than in last uh, AMA, I will uh, come back to your other question. So the question about um, why can zinc deficiency cause vitamin A, vitamin D, thyroid, and sex hormones to be ineffective? The answer to that is because the because uh, all of those things carry out their gene expression function by binding to nuclear receptors and all of the nuclear receptors bind to DNA using zinc finger motifs. Zinc finger motif means that in the, uh, in the nuclear receptor, there's a zinc ion that coordinates the primary structure of the protein, which is a long string of amino acids into a finger shape. And then that finger shape, you know, just as if, just as you can interlock your two hands by clasping your fingers together. So these finger shapes lock together with DNA by clasping the finger shapes together. And if you don't have zinc, you don't have the finger shape. And if you don't have the finger shape, you, um, you can't bind, the receptor can't bind to the DNA. Now that's, that's based on uh, mechanistic understanding. Some people will call that mechanistic speculation and say that it's lower evidence than some of the other things. But, um, and I agree with that, but I, but I, I wouldn't dismiss it because really no one thinks about hormone insensitivity uh, as much at all. And certainly as relates to nutrition. Um, and so I have seen people who something changes in their diet and the dose, not only the dose of a hormone that they need changes, and I'm not the one managing this. I'm not a doctor. I don't prescribe hormones, but I just, you know, they tell me about their experience. Um, and so I've had consulting clients who have described these things, you know, in the years and 
sometimes decades before um, they became my client, they had to not only adjust the dose of their hormones, but they also had to adjust the blood levels that that could be used as an indicator of the amount of hormone because uh, their sensitivity to the hormone changed. And there's not really many people talking about how nutrition can potentially impact hormone sensitivity. And to know these things, I think is super valuable as a potential explanation when there are no other potential explanations. And so um, if your zinc status is poor, you may not, you know, you may get the right blood levels of the hormone, but you may not get the physiological effect you expect. And Hey, if your plasma zinc is low and you fix the plasma zinc and you get the physiological effect of the hormone, that's pretty nice to know that information. So that's why I, I put that kind of stuff in the cheat sheet. All right. Thank you, Jay, for your question. Uh, if time permitting, I'll come back and uh, answer the others. Anonymous says, since I didn't give a good question to the last anonymous question, I'll go to anonymous. Anonymous says, why are long chain unsaturated fats more easily beta oxidized than long chain saturated fats? What is the mechanism behind this? Also, during extended fasting, predominantly more unsaturated and longer chain fatty acids are released from lipolysis. Why do you think this is? Um, so the long chain unsaturated fats, um, I, I, I don't know in detail the mechanism, but I do know that that's been shown in human cells and in live animal experiments. And it presumably is related to the affinity of the enzyme for the fatty acid. And that's not, that's not something that's biochemically difficult. It's sort of, it's normal if there are, um, it's normal if there are enzymes that work with any fatty acid for them to have different affinities for some fatty acids versus others. It would actually be, it would actually be highly strange if there weren't at least some differences in the affinity uh, of an enzyme for dozens of different substrates. So I'm guessing, this is my guess, but I'm guessing that it's because there's different affinity for the enzymes. But what I, what I can tell you is that it's been shown in human cells and in animal experiments. And there's also human uh, trials that seem to um, that seem very consistent with it. So, for example, the fact that short-term two-week trials show that polyunsaturated fats can lead to lower liver triglycerides than saturated fats is very consistent with the idea that they are more easily beta oxidized. Um, so, I so I think it's I think it's a clinically relevant, physiologically relevant phenomenon. Um, in terms of, so there's two ways to answer the question, why? Uh, and I think your first part of that question was focusing mechanistically, why? What's the mechanism behind this? Um, but then there's the sort of like, why would it happen that way? And it's my um, opinion that it happens that way because it's advantageous to get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids beyond the requirement for essentiality. And this is, this is really convincing in rats and mice because they not only burn them for energy at a higher rate, but they also turn them into saturated fat, fatty acids and they expel them into their fur. 
um, at very high rates. And so they really, really seem to want to do anything they can to get rid of PUFAs beyond the requirement for essential fatty acids. Um, and to me, that's sort of obvious why that's the case, because you have certain minimal requirement for it, but they're at any amount, they're an oxidative liability. So why would you want your tissues to be easily oxidized? Um, you know, why would you want that liability any higher than it has to be to maintain essential physiological functions? You wouldn't. So it's, I, I see it as a straightforward uh, explanation that you just want to get rid of fatty acids that are a liability to have around. And that doesn't mean they're not essential. It just means that you don't want more than you need. Um, during your second part of your question is during extended fasting, predominantly more unsaturated and longer and longer chain fatty acids are released from lipolysis. Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suspect the answer is the same. Um, is the same as what I just said for why they're beta oxidized at a higher rate. And it would be, it would be weird if they were beta oxidized at a higher rate, but they were not, um, they were not released at a higher rate for beta oxidation. Um, I mean, it, it would be totally possible, but it would be, uh, but it would, it would be a cleaner functioning system if the goal is to get rid of the ones beyond what you need and, you had half the system working in favor of that beta oxidation, but lipolysis, the other half of that system was not working. So I, my suspicion, it's just a suspicion, it's just an opinion, is that's, that's what's going on. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Um, look, I see some, uh, some stuff in the chat going on. Uh, as I said before, please uh, don't... The only use for the chat should be um, commenting when people are on the webcam... Any questions should go in the Q&A box and any responses to other people's questions should go in the Q&A box because I'm not going to be able to look in two different boxes at once. Um, all right. Pippa asks, can you think of a reason why ferritin and serum B12 would increase significantly after five days of hypocaloric keto dieting from a baseline of eucaloric keto and then drop again after going hypercaloric keto? Dave Feldman saw this in one of his recent experiments. Ferritin rose from 282 to 346 and then back to 272. Uh, so 282 is eucaloric. 346 was hypocaloric. Back to 272 was hypercaloric. B12 went from 912 on eucaloric to 1411 hypocaloric to 816 on hypercaloric. Um I don't know. I can throw out some guesses, but I don't know how valuable those guesses are. And I certainly don't know how correct they are. Um, so ferritin, uh, ferritin is very strongly really, uh, influenced by inflammation and oxidative stress. And so if the iron status is not changing and the ferritin's going up and then down, uh, to me, that suggests that oxidative stress or inflammation is increasing in the hypocaloric state. Um, and that wouldn't surprise me, um, it, given the sense that, you know, Feldman's eating a, 
I believe is eating, uh, well, on a, it's hyper, these are all keto diets, right? So, um, I don't know. I was thinking maybe there's, maybe there's more PUFAs and more, you know, stronger favoring of oxidative stress when there's more PUFAs released from adipose tissue, uh, during a hypercaloric, uh, excuse me, during a hypocaloric state. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know. There could be a thyroid regulation here. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how thyroid would play into this, but obviously thyroid's going to go down in the hypochloric state and up in the hypercaloric state. Um, B12 can go up with liver problems sometimes. Uh, so it's it's possible that in this hypocaloric state, um, the, uh, the liver's not doing too well. Because <laughs> um, one of the things that happens is... Like if you compare the fed state to the fasting state, in the fasting state, the liver is taking on much more of the brunt of energy metabolism than in the fed state. So think about the keto diet, right? On and let's just uh, let's replace his hypocaloric diet with fasting, since uh, fasting is just a more extreme form of a hypocaloric diet. So on a keto diet. And on fasting, you're going to be burning a lot of fat. But on the keto diet, your fat is coming in from food. Your fat is bypassing the liver. It's going into the lymph, circulating as chylomicrons. And then every tissue besides the liver gets first dibs on taking up that fat. In fasting, adipose tissue is releasing fatty acids, uh, opposite of the keto diet, right? Adipose tissue is taking up fatty acids in the postprandial state of a keto diet. The fasting state, adipose is releasing fatty acids. Those fatty acids are all going to the liver. Um, they're not going into the lymph and circulating the way in chylomicrons for uptake by other tissues by, in LPL, the way that postprandial triglycerides from the diet are. So all those fatty acids are going straight to the liver. And the intention is that they'll get beta oxidized there and they will support the ATP will, from beta oxidation will be used to support gluconeogenesis. And uh, to the extent there's acetyl-CoA left over, that will be used to form ketones that can then go out and be used by the other tissues. So all the all the uh, all the all the PUFAs are being metabolized in the liver, um, and so there's probably oxidative stress is increasing in the liver specifically in the hypocaloric diet because the fatty acids are all being biased towards. Uh, lipolysis from adipose tissue straight to the liver for beta oxidation. And I think that's dramatically increasing the oxidative uh, burden on the liver. And, and there's, you know, short-term damage being done in the liver that's increasing the B12 and ferritin levels. That would be my guess. Just a guess, but that's, those are my thoughts. All right. Thanks, Pippi, for your question. All right, we have some anonymous questions. Remember, I'm favoring people who are not anonymous uh, simply on the basis that I want to make sure that everyone gets a question before I do number uh, second questions. So all anonymous questions are being treated as from the same person. Heather Chandler says, are you aware of any mechanism by which methylated vitamins, such as methylfolate and methylcobalamin, could increase pain in the form of central sensitization? Increasing BDNF, TNF-alpha, and VEGF, 
vascular endothelial growth factor are well-established ways to increase central sensitization, but I'm not sure if methylated vitamins have any relation to those. Um, so first of all, my general default position, if people have problems with methylated vitamins that they don't have from other vitamins, is that their methylation system is uh, kind of unstable and it needs to be stabilized. And so my, my first thoughts without getting into specifics on mechanisms or symptoms is that for someone who has a very specific reaction to the methylated B vitamins, they, uh, they probably need two things. Number one, they need to make sure that their glycine levels are middle of the range normal. And number two, they need to start with very low doses and equilibrate to those very low doses and then titrate up very slowly over time. Now, as to whether I can speculate anything about uh, pain or central sensitization of pain, um, I'm not sure. Um, just to throw out some random, I, I can't offer an answer to that. It's possible if I spent more time thinking about it, I could. But just to throw out some random threads that may or may not be of use, uh, I think methylation in some people is going to lead to increased synthesis of dopamine. But in general, the effect is going to be to decrease the tonic um, the tonic pool of dopamine. It's, there's going to be some degree to which it decreases other neurotransmitters. And it's possible that if particularly if glycine is not stabilized, that you're going to lose the inhibitory effect of glycine and that you might also lose the, um, you might also lose the effect of ambient glycine in co-activating NMDA receptors. Now, off the top of my head, I would think that you would want the, glycine there to support, uh, excuse me, I would think that if you lost glycine, um, that I, I would think that NMDA receptor hypofunction would not lead to central sensitization of pain. Um, but I, cause I think in general, uh, glutamate neurotransmission is going to promote chronic pain and general, generally, NMDA receptors are going to promote uh, maybe not the, as much the pain per, itself as um, long-term potentiation and strengthening of synaptic connections that solidify the sensitization. But um, to the extent that glycine is a uh, inhibitory neurotransmitter at many nerves where glutamate transmission could be involved in the pain, then I think it's possible that glycine depletion could play a role in why those methylated metabolites would um, lead to more of that pain uh, neurotransmission that results in pain. Um, and that would fit in with what I was saying before, which is my default base cases to assume that there's instability in the methylation flux 
that is driven in part by low glycine levels. Um, and so I guess I would look there first as a possible explanation, but I'm speculating. All right. Thank you, Heather, for your, for your question. Gary Krieger says, hi, Chris. In your last AMA, you mentioned using milk thistle or sulforaphane to move fer uh, iron from serum to ferritin. Would this be considered a normal physiological option or more a backdoor approach to lower elevated transferrin saturation? I understand hypothyroidism and MTHFR signal nucleotide polymorphisms can cause elevated transferrin, transferrin saturation and low ferritin. How would you best address these conditions to lower transferrin saturation? Recent labs of mine have put transferrin saturation in the range of 39 to 46 and ferritin 60 to 70. TSH 2.85, RT reverse T3 18, free T3 mid range. Thank you. Um, I per if that was me, I would be giving blood. And the way that I look at this is, I think there's a lot of confusion that is driven by looking at ferritin as if it's a universal singular marker of iron status, which is completely not. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of muddled thinking that that comes around the diagnostic criteria used for hemochromatosis. And so what gets lost in the observation that people with diagnosable hemochromatosis have really high ferritin is that the mechanism that begins at decades before that's found is that the the, the communication between elevated transparin saturation and the hepcidin system that lowers iron absorption and increases ferritin is broken. So it should happen if that situation is working correctly is that as your transparin saturation moves up between 30 and 40 percent, the, uh, the, there's a cascade of physiological responses to that that lower your iron absorption and that increase your ferritin. So if you were to find someone when that first happened, not after they had diagnosable hemochromatosis, if you were to find someone who was in the initial stages of recognizing that pattern, what you would find is that their transferrin saturation would be quite high and their ferritin would be much lower than you would expect it to be. Because the thing that's broken is the ferritin doesn't respond to the transferrin saturation. So, um, so the default for me is to read a transferrin saturation that's consistently above 40%. And now, granted, 39 to 46 is only a little bit above 40%, right? So I am homozygous for H63D. When I first discovered that I had iron overload issues, my transferrin saturation was at 55%, and I was in my 20s, in my early 20s. Um, so 39 to 46 is like barely out of the range. And I guess maybe be, I mean, it's not, it's not as if giving blood once is dangerous for, you know, most cases. Uh, so I don't see that as a problem. Although, you know, you know, maybe if you're worried about COVID or, um, or you hate needles or you're not, you know, whatever you might, you might want to wait it out and see where that goes. But if that's an increasing trend, I personally am going to, if that were me, I'd be interpreting that as early iron overload. 
Um, and yeah, the ferritin is, is 60 to 70 and it'll go down with iron overload, but, um, I mean with blood donation, but, um, personally, when I'm concerned about iron overload, I'm, I'm okay. Letting ferritin go down to 20 to 40. Whereas if I'm concerned about anemia, iron deficiency, anemia, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to want to make sure ferritin stays above 60. Um, now the, the so the question arises: Why does someone, if the if if in hemochromatosis the communication between high transferrin saturation and ferritin is broken, why does uh why does uh ferritin go up so high? The answer is that oxidative stress results from high free iron, which correlates with high transferrin saturation, and it's the oxidative stress that drives the ferritin so high. Um, and the logic in the last AMA of talking about milkthis and sulforaphane was to help get the hormesis or the perception of oxidative stress from those supplements to jack up the oxidative stress response to get a higher ferritin reaction. Um, but you know, if your ferritin is 60, 70 and you're giving blood, then you probably want to do what the blood donation people will already do for you, which is make sure you don't run iron deficient. Um, but you know, you could, you could enhance that a little bit by making sure, also sure that your hemoglobin, hematocrit, red blood cells and whatnot don't go low. Now, the last thing is if your transferrin saturation is a little bit high, you, uh, you really should make sure that your albumin doesn't run a little bit low because if your albumin runs a little bit low, it's going to make your transferrin saturation look a little bit high and it's going to be false. Um, and that's transferrin saturation is sort of like calculated LDL. It's not the thing you want, but most of the time it's good enough. Um, and so with borderline high transferrin saturation, where you're not convinced of iron overload, you really should look at actual transferrin saturation. And there's a formula in testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet to calculate that. But the measurements required would be at the same time you get the iron panel, get the serum transferrin. And I, I personally would say, get the, I mean, you could do it just serum iron and serum transferrin, but my preference would be get, get serum ferrin and get serum transferrin and get the iron panel. That way you can correlate them. So, you know, you can say when my iron saturation is 40%, what does my transferrin saturation calculate to? And is, is iron saturation actually a good proxy or is it not? And that would require like three measurements where you take them together to look at their correlation. Um, so I guess number one would be see if it's a fake correlation by looking at actual transferrin saturation. Um, number two would be make sure it's an uptrend and it's not a fluke. Like if it was, if it was, it was 39, it was 46. And next time it's 37, it's probably a fluke, but if it's an uptrend, you probably want to do something about it. Um, and Yes, you could try the, you know, some in that situation could try the Nerf 2 stimulators like milk thistle and sulforaphane. Um, but if it is a genuine uptrend in early stage iron overload, you know, that might be a situation that giving blood once a year would be the best solution. All right. Thank you, Gary, for your question. Um, we have 15 minutes left. We started a little bit late, so let's go for 20 minutes, but let's um, stop any questions from coming in so that I can get through the batch of questions we have here. 
And I'll try to go a little bit faster now. So Elizaveta Gorskaya says, hello from Russia. Thank you for this opportunity. What's your opinion on nutrition for people with MS? Saturated fats, no saturated fats, keto, AIP, paleo. Uh, I'm sorry, Elizaveta, but I don't really have a, a, a very strong opinion personally on MS. Um, I, I do respect the work that Terry Wallace has done. Um, not too intimately familiar with the science on it, but I would, I would defer to Terry Walsh on this because I know she's dealt with it personally and that she spent a, a real lot of time on it. Thank you for your question, Elizabeth. Deb Stewart says, are you aware of any nutritional or supplemental strategies that improve tinnitus? Um, I believe magnesium might be valuable. And I think anything related to uh, glutamate GABA balance is potentially valuable. I would search the Chris Masterjohn Light section and the Vitamins and Minerals 101 Premium section for glutamate and GABA. And there's a bunch of stuff that is there. Um, magnesium is, is you know independently mentioned in glutamate GABA balance because it is the off switch for NMDA receptors. Um, of course, vitamin B6 is needed for converting glutamate to GABA. That can be relevant. Um, sodium chloride and potassium are all necessary to clear glutamate. That can be relevant. Uh, ATP, niacin uh, can both be important for clearing, uh, clearing glutamate in certain ways. All the B vitamins involved in the Krebs cycle, just basically pretty much all of them besides, uh, in this case, um, yeah, pretty much all of them besides B12 and folate are going to be somewhat indirectly really uh, indirectly required to um, recycle GABA. But, you know, now that I think about that, that's, that's probably not going to affect the glutamate GABA balance. Um, but certainly B6 and niacin are important. ATP levels are important. Anything that can affect ATP levels, including, well, uh, there you go. So all the B vitamins involved in energy metabolism are going to help support ATP levels. And those are important for clearing glutamate. Um, and then uh, glycine, glycine and uh, having enough methylfolate, as we were talking about before, is important to not, for not, to avoid glycine wasting. Um, but glycine, just in general, getting enough glycine is important uh, alongside GABA to balance glutamate. Um, so I think the only well-demonstrated thing among what I listed is magnesium. Uh, for, um, but, uh, but I do think if you, know, if you can't solve it uh, with anything that's available as a well-demonstrated remedy, you, uh, I think you know, looking at nutritional status for any of the B vitamins that I was just talking about for anything that hormonal or uh, nutritional reasons for low ATP levels, uh, all the electrolytes, especially sodium chloride and potassium, and uh, with in the B vitamins and a, a special emphasis on B6, I think are all going to be relevant. And then uh, the last thing I would add is that hyperglycemia is going to drive elevated glutamate in the brain. Um, and I'm not sure if that impacts uh, tinnitus, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. And so stable blood sugar is also important or is theoretically also important. Thank you for your question, Deb. Sharon Schultz says, 
is there any way we can know our zinc copper ratio is optimal without testing? Um, no, and I I don't agree with using the zinc copper ratio in testing. So it is the case that um, it is the case that zinc and copper need to be in a very loose range of ratios. So you you don't want your dietary zinc to be more than 15 times your dietary copper. And you don't want your dietary zinc to be less than two times your dietary copper. Um, but other than that, you're really looking at them individually and you're looking at, you know, do I have enough zinc? Do I have enough copper? Do I have signs of zinc deficiency? Do I have signs of copper deficiency? Do I have signs of too much of one or the other? Much more than you're looking at the ratio. And in plasma, I think the ratio just reflects disease responses. For example, inflammation will um, suck zinc into cells and mobilize copper out of the liver. And so it's going to lower the zinc to copper ratio in plasma. And I don't think that has anything to do with nutrition. Um, and so... Uh, I, I think it can be a, a marker in observational studies of disease processes. I don't think it's a useful clinical marker, except as a, you know, hey, something's wrong here. Let's look at inflammation markers, but why not just look at inflammation markers? Um, and so in blood testing, I really would only want to see plasma zinc around 100 to 120 and plasma copper fairly close to the middle of the range, pretty similar at 100 to 120, generally speaking. Um, and in the diet, I would want to see a ratio of zinc to copper, at least two to one, no more than 15 to one and otherwise just manage them individually. Thank you, Sharon, for your question. Okay. It looks, uh, oh, I have a question here from Bernardo Junquiera. Apologize, uh, if my pronunciation is incorrect. Uh, Bernardo says, for mid-30s lean and active man, eating mostly an animal-based diet, including dairy, but also nuts, some avocado and broccoli, what would be good supplementing doses and forms for daily maintenance of boron, avocate testosterone levels, chromium, not, not IR, not insulin resistant, and molybdenum, considering I do have some issues with garlic and I also think with raw onion and even broccoli. I'll get it all from a compound pharmacy. So it could be any dose. Um, good supplementing doses and forms for daily maintenance of boron. Um, I think the molybdenum, if you have sulfur issues, should probably be around 150 micro, uh, micrograms you could conceivably go up to 500 micrograms. Um, and that's mostly to avoid a false negative on trying the molybdenum against the sulfur issues. And it is the case that more molybdenum might actually suppress bacterial uh, use of the sulfur in your gut. So you could try higher levels. Um, and there are some theoretical risks of having an imbalance with copper if you get very high. But 500 micrograms is actually really high for molybdenum. So I wouldn't worry about that. Um, I don't have strong opinions on boron or chromium. Uh, like one to three milligrams of boron is plenty and is on the high side. 
Um, you know, if you don't have a, uh, an issue you're trying to solve with the chromium, probably somewhere around 40 micrograms or something like that. But I would check that against what I have in the Vitamins and Minerals 101 class. If you're a MasterPass member, you have access to the Vitamins and Minerals 101 premium uh, classes where you can just uh, keyword search um, for chromium, molybdenum, and boron and just see the targets that I have there. It's possible that when I was deep into the research on those chapters, I had something that's not on the top of my uh, brain right now. Um, so I feel more confident what I just said about molybdenum. But uh, thank you for your question, Bernardo. Okay, I think we're going into second questions now. So Jay Anderson's second question was, I keep hearing that the body needs some time to become fat adapted. Doesn't it know how to burn fat right away? Um, it knows how to burn fat, but that's not what happens during fat adaptation. What happens during fat ad adaptation is that the body perceives that you are running on fat and therefore takes time to degrade the proteins involved in burning alternative fuels and to synthesize the proteins involved in burning fat. And of course, it's not going to just take time to do the synthesis of those proteins. It's also going to take time to be convinced that your change to fat is a sustainable change over time, right? So your body doesn't want to invest, um, like you're not going to remodel your house because you had a visitor. But if you realize that you want to spend the next six years having house parties, maybe you're going to change something in your house. Right? If it's an energy-intensive process, you're not going to completely remodel the system to favor one versus another on the basis that you ate one thing once. You're going to do that on the basis of a sustained change. Thank you for your question, Jay. I'll come back to the others uh, time permitting. I think, I think there'll be time. Anonymous says, other than vitamin D, would there be any blood tests that you would suggest someone get on a regular basis? Specifically, I'm asking for a male in his late 30s with no identified health issues. No, I would defer to the approach in testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. I mean, apart from regular tests that your doctor's always going to order on a on an annual physical, uh, I'm not saying not to get those, but in terms of nutritional testing, I, I defer to the approach in new testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, which is, and I had went into detail before uh, during the initial half of this Q&A, but basically... Um, if you want the time-saving cost, you know, high cost approach, you can do comprehensive nutritional screening. If you have the money to burn, um, and you're not worried about whether insurance is covering all the testing and you want to just be very proactive, there's nothing wrong with doing comprehensive nutritional screening if you bear the cost for it. It's just that the costs are very high for most people. Um, and for most people, it's better to do very targeted testing according to what is justified. And that's all, you know, it's also, um, I mean, that's what your doctors do. It's just, I have a somewhat different like uh, parameters for deciding what's justified in the cheat sheet for nutrition. And so for the, the cost saving approach in the cheat sheet is to do a dietary analysis, look through the index of signs and symptoms and see what nutrients are high priority for you. If there's something you can fix in an easy, low-cost way, and it does, it's not a value for you to do testing, you just want to try it and see if it works, you can do that. 
But if testing would help you decide what to do or it help increase your confidence that what you're doing is working and therefore you should stick with it, at that point, you would do the testing. All right, thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Pippa A says, going back to what you said about PUFA being preferentially oxidized, that is very interesting, but begs the question, why does stored adipose PUFA increase in proportion of dietary intake? Wouldn't it be preferentially oxidized rather than stored? If you're storing fat, it's because you're eating too much. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not, it's not entirely true. Like you're always going to store some fat, but generally when you're storing fat, um, you know, if, if I eat uh, 2000 calories today, to some extent, the adipose PUFA is going to increase as kind of collateral damage of the normal flux that there is always generalized lipolysis and resynthesis of triglycerides going on in the liver. And if during that process, I'm, uh, you know, getting dietary fatty acids in there, they're going to get mixed in somehow, some way. Um, but in terms of, you know, why would there be significant, very meaningful uh, net accretion of those dietary PUFAs? That's generally going to be because I'm already fulfilling my requirements for energy with other things. And that other things is generally carbohydrate. Generally, carbohydrates prefer preferentially burned for energy. And, you know, you might say, well, why don't you prefer preferentially burn the PUFAs for energy instead of the carbohydrate? Well, good luck storing 40 pounds of glycogen. I mean, you just can't do it, right? You can store endless amounts of fat and you can't store glycogen. Um, and so I think there are probably other reasons why glucose is preferentially burned there are, because there are advantages to burning glucose. It is more versatile as a fuel uh, than fat is in terms of the things that can be done with it. Like fat can't enter the pentose phosphate pathway to support antioxidant defense and nutrient recycling and, and anabolic synthesis. It, fat can't be anaplerotic by allowing the Krebs cycle to run. Um, glucose can do those things. But you know, at the end of the day, if you have to store some of the energy you ate and you have to burn some of the energy you ate, you're going to store the fat because there is no end to the supply of fat you can carry around. And there's a pretty strong cap on the amount of glycogen you can carry around. Therefore, you're going to burn the carbs for energy and store the fat if you eat enough food to replace the fat. And if you're in a hypercaloric diet and you're gaining fat over time, then uh, you're going to accrete more of the PUFA in the fat than if you were in a eucaloric diet and your fat was stable, but you happen to get some of those fatty acids mixed in to get stored in adipose tissue. So uh, you're, I mean, the body doesn't have one priority to get rid of PUFA. It has meant, you know, inconceivably high number of priorities. And so you can't always prioritize getting rid of the PUFA. And storing the PUFA in adipose tissue is a lot safer than, than storing it in your cell membranes. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you have to soak up more vitamin E to protect the PUFA in adipose tissue, that's better than having lipid peroxidation chain reactions in the cell membranes and damaging the function of proteins, damaging your metabolism and making your cells fall apart. So adipose storage of PUFA is not that bad of an option, all things considered. All right. Thank you, Pippa, for your question. Okay. I'll try to give pretty uh, short 
answers to the rest of the questions that we get through. So Jay's uh, next, Jay Anderson's next question is, if I cook a pound of ground beef, 75% fat mix of muscle and organ meats, and then discard the fat, how many nutrients, if any, am I losing? Um, I don't think, I don't think you're going to lose that many nutrients. Um, because the, because you're not, um, most of the, if you're the 75% fat, um, or rather the 25% fat, 75% lean, uh, ground beef mixed with those organs, most of that fat is coming from the marbling of the beef. That's not coming from the organ meats. Most of the nutrients are in the organ meats and they're not in marbled fat. They're in uh, cells and stuff. Um, so I'm sure you know some fat-soluble stuff is going to run out of that because the cells are going to get ground up and damaged a little bit and the fat-soluble things might get carried away a little bit. But I, I don't think that you're going to be losing much of that. But if you're worried about that, get uh get a leaner a leaner uh mix because you're not you're you're not losing things by loot by not having the fat if you're losing anything it's from the fat carrying things out of the organ meats so just start with less fat in the first place and then you won't have to worry about that and then jay's uh last question is Jay Anderson says, I saw NADH available as a supplement. Can you cram more NADH into the system? Does this make any biochemical sense? What might be the effects of taking it? The NADH will be hydrolyzed to something along the lines of nicotinamide riboside. Uh, it will be absorbed and it will act like nicotinamide riboside does, which will increase the amount of nicotinamide stored in the liver for release to the tissues and that will help increase their NADH levels. But there's no point in taking the NADH um, instead of taking nicotinamide riboside or NMN. And it's if if anything, it will be less bioavailable, but it might be equivalent. Thank you, Jay, for all your questions. Anonymous says, what do you think about the oxidized phospholipids test for oxidized phospholipids on ApoB? Um, interesting, but not validated. So um, I'm not against measuring it. It's It's interesting to measure but we don't have real strong data on its correlation to disease risk. And we also don't really know how much it reflects the oxidation of lipoproteins in the subendothelial space, which is what matters. Presumably it reflects it to some degree. It's just, I don't know how much it reflects it. So without validation on either of those two fronts, I, I would take it as a, you know, interesting, but not good for, not a good basis for strong conclusions. Anonymous says they're a clean bone meal powder supplement for dietary calcium. Um, there's one that I recommend for uh, traditional, it's called traditional foods bone meal. Let me Google this real quick. Yeah, traditionalfoods.org has a, a bone meal that's good. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Um. Anonymous says, Dr. CMJ, in a previous email you sent out, you referenced self-decode as being a game changer. I also heard you in a podcast state that you do not use genome analysis very often in your practice because you don't find it reliable. I believe I'm paraphrasing you correctly, but please correct me if I'm not. Can you please elaborate on what you believe is useful and not useful with regard to genome analysis generally and self-decode specifically? 
Additionally, if there are specific areas you believe are especially helpful, for example, identifying MTHFR or not helpful for people to identify through genome analysis, I would greatly appreciate hearing your thoughts. Thanks in advance. Um, so the quick answer on this is that there are very, very few genes where we have really good information on how they impact nutritional requirements. But we have many, many, many genes where we have decent information on what they do mechanistically and where we can speculate things that might be helpful. So genome analysis is very uh, useful as a brainstorm mechanism. Um, and of course, it's geno you know, genome sequencing in a clinical context to identify rare metabolic disease, a totally different thing. That's obviously useful for where it's been defined as being useful. Um, but like, uh, you know, doing like a 23andMe analysis and submitting it to a report is useful for brainstorming um, and potentially generating some explanations for things that you observe if you want to get deep into pattern analysis and try to explain something that you can't explain otherwise. Um, and I think self-decode did a really good job in distilling, um, in first of all, uh, taking a lot of conflicting polymorphisms and distilling them into a net result. And then second of all, distilling some actionable, uh, principles. And then third of all, you know, noting where they're brainstorming and providing references to give some reasonable level of confidence of, uh, you know, exactly what, yeah, I mean, some reasonable level of understanding of their confidence in what they're saying, which is largely limited to this is going on in your genes. This might be, this might be related. This might help. So it's really for the most part a brainstorming tool, but there's very specific things where for MTHFR, we know it increases choline requirements. It's reasonable to think that you want to watch your folate intake it, and, and so on. Uh, but even my MTHFR protocol is driven uh, largely on mechanistic understanding that seems to result in strategies that have worked for people uh, so, like creatine supplementation is there is there are, is a study of it lowering homocysteine, but it's the logic there is mostly understanding the mechanisms. Um, but the choline requirement, there are studies justifying. So, it's it's rare that there's studies justifying the nutritional approach to the genes, and it's much more common that it's great brainstorming. Thank you, anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, what's the maximum amount of vitamin C you can take in a single dose without causing non-physiological spikes in serum ascorbic acid levels? Well, I mean, you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get any dose that's like a non, uh, that's not going to cause a spike. Um, and so what you consider physiological is probably going to be largely along the lines of diet. And so, you know, whether you're not going to get that much of a spike above 500 milligrams. Um, so the question is like, is the spike you get from 100 to 500 physiological? Uh, I mean, I would view it as physiological because it's, it's, um, it's not doing something pharmacological. It's not doing something by creating a physiological state that is different from the normal one that achieves something that vitamin C would normally do. So I wouldn't really call a, a spike from 500 milligrams of vitamin C non-physiological, but it's certainly like out of the bounds of what you'd usually get with diet. Um, so, but, you know, basically dietary levels are what you would usually get with diet. That's really all you can say for that. All right. One second before I do the last few questions. 
Okay, so uh, last few questions here. Anonymous says, in a previous AMA, you noted that you believe cycling in and out of a keto diet has health benefits because there are certain advantages to being in a fed state and a fasted state. A couple of related questions. One, do you have any recommendations for how long to stay in the fed and fasted states? For example, one week of keto, one week of non. When you discuss fed and fasted states in this context, are you referring to the fed state as one with carbs and the fasted state as one without carbs rather than fasted being completely devoid of calories? Okay, so quick answer to this is, you know, Traditional textbook biochemistry would define the fed state as the feeding of a mixed meal. And that's characterized by calories, but it's also characterized by carbs. And so part of the fed state signaling is dictated by ATP levels and citrate levels and uh, NADH levels. And part of it is dictated by hormones such as the insulin to glucagon ratio. So you're basically in a fully fed state if you have a mixed meal with carbs and you're basically in the fully fasted state if you don't eat and you're in an in-between state if you're on a keto diet that mimics some of the aspects of the fasting state with particular emphasis on the insulin to glucagon ratio, but also you know lower citrate levels, but isn't really mimicking low ATP levels and uh, in other things that are characteristic of um, low calorie intake. And so your and the keto diet was invented as a way to extend the fasting state without starving someone to death for therapeutic purposes. That's why it exists. Um, and so uh, that's what I'm referring to by fed and fasted state. And But the first question, do I have recommended uh, recommendations for how long to stay in the fed and fasted states? No. Um, in fact, I think someone who eats three meals a day and no snacking is doing a form of intermittent fasting that most people aren't doing. And I don't even have a basis for believing whether that is superior, inferior, or the same as one meal a day in a 20-hour, four-hour feeding window. Um, and so I think it's very clear that you want to cycle through the fed and fasted states. I think exactly how you do that is all trial and error and anecdotal uh, accumulation of anecdotes and experiences at this point. And so I'm totally agnostic on that and totally open-minded about it. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, in a previous post, you noted that there are studies demonstrating that fructose could fuel COVID-19. Well, no, I, what I said was fructose can um, increase things that feed COVID uh, viruses and that might aggravate COVID-19. Um, do you have any recommended dosage of how much fruit or fructose people should consume to minimize this risk? No, a uh, couple, I would eat fruit sort of normally. I wouldn't go on a fruitarian diet, but I'm not worried about a few pieces of fruit, but I would be worried about added sugars um, in, you know, fruit, juicing fruit is essentially like adding sugar. Um, so just, I would avoid added sugar. Uh, related, do you have any fruits that you recommend as particularly helpful? Um, well, if you like low carb, bell peppers are a great source of vitamin C. Um, but otherwise, no, I think diversity is better than, than picking certain ones. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, do you know the source of wrong information that pumpkin seeds, avocado, and olive oil are a good source of, of omega-3s? No. Of course, it's not true, but there was at the beginning of the 1990s a measurement of omega and monounsaturated fatty acids, some wrong information published, especially many self-help nutrition books claim this wrong information. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Anonymous says, hi, Chris, what is the best way to get rid of fatty liver? Would occasionally two to three days, two to three day fasts uh, get rid of better of the organ visceral fat? Can one megadose choline and inositol? Why do you prefer alpha GPC over sunflower less than thank you? Um, for fatty liver, uh, I think I have a video on that. I'm going to Google Chris Masterjohn fatty liver and um, 
I have a Chris Master John light video that's a second result on uh, Google for Chris Master John fatty liver, what to do about fatty liver. So I'm going to defer you to that. And then after that, I would look at my start here for fatty liver disease, which is the top uh, Google result. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Um, Anonymous says, and this is the last question. Anonymous says, hi, Chris, I did the Crohn's disease question. I'll be more specific now. I'd be interested to know how to minimize bacterial translocation. I've heard that a low-fiber, low-fat diet should minimize bacterial population and try to make diet composition changes slowly so that the immune system can adapt to regulate bacterial population. I would agree with that, but I would suggest that maybe a, 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 a insoluble fiber like psyllium husk would actually help minimize bacterial fermentation or push it further along deeper into the colon than it otherwise is. Um, and so I would experiment with that variation rather than just low fiber. Uh, but you definitely want low soluble fiber. Another specific thing anonymous goes on could be to increase innate immunity via increasing antimicrobial peptides as those help to control bacterial population, but do not increase inflammation or increase damage to the bowels. These kind of things should be therapeutic to Crohn's. And I'd love to hear how you expand on these two things, not necessarily linked to Crohn's. If you don't feel educated to talk, avoid it in the, in the context of this disease, but in general, thank you very much. Um, so I'm not really, I'm not familiar with taking antimicrobial peptides. Um, if you mean, if you mean taking them, if you mean making them, then I think vitamins A and D would be a good way to help boost the production of antimicrobial peptides. Um, but I'm not, I'm not familiar with peptides as therapy, if that's what you're referring to. Okay. That's all we, uh, anonymous said, he said psyllium husk. Yes, I did. Uh, okay, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for attending the AMA. Um, this was this was great. I hope if there are some of you who were last time and you didn't get your questions asked, I hope you got a chance this time. And um, probably the next one will be in January. So look out for my notification of when to register for the next AMA and have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you.